Good cold morning. How y'all doing this morning? How many of you went to the beach last Sunday? How many of you are going again today? All right. Wimps. Anyway, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hope you're doing well this morning. My name's Todd. For those of you I don't know, I'm the pastor here. And uh, if you're listening via our uh, podcast, uh, wherever and whenever that is, uh, thank you so much for joining with us in worship and in study. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel, several different chapters this morning, and uh, we are going to be in chapter 17, chapter 24, and 26. Don't worry, not all of them. And then we're going to skip over to 2 Samuel chapter 11 as we continue in our series called Faithful. And uh, we've been in this series here now. This is our second week in the series called Faithful as we're looking to God's Word, particularly we're looking um, to uh, His Word to find stories, character studies of faithfulness in the Bible. And uh, the way it ends up, we're going to be in the Old Testament the whole time, and then we're using New Testament truths to kind of back up or support those examples. And the whole purpose, the whole point of what we're talking about is how to remain faithful in the relationships that God has given us. Whether it's a marriage and, hey, it's the week of Valentine's, so, uh, you know, men and women are, are celebrating that this week. Uh, whether it's uh, uh, brothers or sisters, whether it's family members, whether it's with your parents or even with friends, as we'll look at next week, um, God's Word has a lot to say about faithfulness. And, you know, it's interesting because I believe, I believe that how we treat others, the faithfulness with which we treat others, those are, who are closest to us, maybe even those who we come into contact with that are maybe acquaintances. I think that how we treat those people in our lives is a direct reflection on the kind of faithfulness that we have towards God himself. And so we're going to be taking a look here over these next few weeks, and we're continuing here in our series today about what it means to be faithful. The Apostle Paul gives these words to the church in Rome. He says this, Don't just pretend. Don't just pretend to love others really love them. He says, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Some translations say cling to what is good. Love each other with a genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. And that's what this series is all about. It's all about remaining faithful. It's all about learning what it means to have faithfulness in those relationships that are close to us. And today we're going to be taking a look at this word respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. All right, I threatened to sing Father Abraham last week. I won't threaten to sing that song today. There's, a, uh, there's an old adage. Some of you may have heard it. It goes like this. The six most important words are, I admit I made a mistake. All right, ladies are punching their husbands right now on the sides there in the ribs. Okay, uh, the five most important words are, you did a good job. The four most important words are, what do you think? The three most important words are, after you please. The two most important words are, come on, parents. Oh, well, that could be one. I'm sorry, but thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, We kind of covered I'm sorry there. The one most important word is we. But the least most important word in the English language is I. Or that's the way that it should be, right? That's what the Bible says that I am the, most, the least important word in all of the English language. And so today, what I want to communicate to you is a truth not about other people. That's a truth about you. It's a truth about how you 
operate with respect towards others. The tendency in this series is to go, yeah, I know another person in my life who needs to hear this. I know someone who I need to send this message to, but this message is for each one of us. We each have the responsibility to find out what God's word says about how we ought to operate today within the context of respecting others, respecting other people in our lives. It's not for other people. It's for you. It's for each one of us. It's interesting, in the 1800s and the 1900s, we saw a rise in the, um, the science of testing, each, uh, testing human beings uh, for their intelligence. And what, result, what resulted from that is the IQ test. We have the IQ test today. It's an uh, intelligent quotient. And in recent decades, we've seen a rise in other types of quotient tests, which measures an individual's aptitude for things like emotion or morality or even creativity. We can say that person has a high moral quotient or a high creativity quotient. And so today, what I want to suggest is that each of you kind of take your own respect quotient as we walk through these points in the story that we're going to hear about today. I'm going to ask for each of you to ask yourself, how am I doing? And there will be three points today. How am I doing on each one of these points? How am I doing? Am I, am I doing a good job? Take your own respect quotient test. Don't poke someone in the ribs. Don't point out, boy, there's 10 people that I'd like for them to hear this message. I want you to ask the question, how am I doing? Because here's the point. We are responsible for ourselves, aren't we? We're responsible for ourselves. We're responsible for us doing what God's word says. And that's all that we can do. You see, we can say, hey, I want to treat this relationship that I'm concerned about. I want to treat this relationship that I'm in with respect. And the other person, you can't control what they do, but you can control what you do. And so today, as we walk through this, today, as we take a look at the examples we're going to take a look at, I want you to ask yourself as we go along, how am I doing with this area? Father, I pray that you would guide our thoughts this morning. God, I pray that you would guide my words. May they be yours and not mine. Holy Spirit, may you guide us into knowledge and truth and understanding and wisdom. And Father God, I pray in the strong name of Jesus that you would help change some relationships by the message that you have for us today. Help us to look at David's life today and, and consider who he is, what he was, the good relationships that he had, the way he treated others with respect, and some of the poor relationships that he had. And God, I pray that we would learn what it means to be faithful in those relationships. God, as we reflect in our relationships, our relationship with you, God, I pray that you would be lifted up, that you would be glorified by how we treat others in our life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Last week, we began this series by looking at Joseph. And we took a look at this man named Joseph, and it was interesting because Joseph had a series of events that led him to a very, uh, uh, a very uh, uh, humbling point in his life, a very potentially discouraging point in his life. It led him to the point of being sold into slavery, and yet he forgave his brothers, those ones that put him in that position to begin with. And so last week, the lesson that we learned about being faithful is, is that in a, in a relationship that we have to learn that faithfulness means forgiving others. And if you're in any kind of relationship, you realize that there's a lot of opportunity to forgive others. Well, today we shift our focus to probably the, the, the most famous character in all the Bible, King David. 
He was the second king of the nation of Israel. And so we're going to be taking a look today. And what we're going to learn from his life, what we're going to discover, it's your main point in your notes this morning, is that being faithful in our relationships means that we should respect one another. That we should have a level of respect that is reflective of the kind of respect that we have for God himself. David had a series of victories and failures in the relationships in his life. And today we're going to look at two of those. We're going to take a look at one victory and one failure. And I think we can learn from these situation, situations in his life a few lessons that will help us to operate from a position of respect in the relationships that we have. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on David, just like we did with Joseph last week. David was a simple shepherd boy. This was a, a, a man who was born um, into a very simple house. Last week, we talked about how Jacob was the grandson of Father Abraham, and so it went Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Well, Abraham's great, great ten times, I'm not going to say great ten times, but his great ten times uh, grandson was a guy named Jesse. And Jesse was from the tribe of Judah. And if you remember from last week, Judah was the one son of Jacob. You know, Jacob had the 12 sons that were the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, it was Judah's bloodline that eventually led to Jesus. And so Jesse is one of the great, great, many times over grandfathers of Jesus. And that would make David, his son, one of the great, great grandfathers of Jesus also. And so this is the bloodline that Jesus came from. But he was born into simplicity. He wasn't born into royalty, David was. He was born into simplicity. He was a shepherd. He was, they say, that he was the runt of all of his brothers. He had a bunch of brothers, and he was the smallest one. He was the youngest one. He was literally kind of the runt of the litter. Well, David's story is that he was destined for greatness. He was destined for, for amazing things. And probably the most famous story that we see from David's life is his defeat and his victory over who? Goliath, the great giant, the great Philistine giant. We'll come to, back to that in a minute. But it's interesting, if you just cover David's simplicity, if you just cover his growing up, you're not going to find out the really important piece of our story today. You have to look at his rise to power. And you have to look at David's rise to power to find out the truth of some of his relationships and how faithful he was in some and how he wasn't in others. You see, there was a king at the time when David rose to power, and his name was Saul. And Saul was like a distant cousin, almost like a distant uncle of David's. He was from one of, the, one of those brothers or one of those sons of Jacob called Benjamin. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And there was a prophet during that day, and prophets in that day in Israel, they were the ones that were chosen by God to choose the leaders of Israel. And there was a period of time when they actually had some power and some ruling, but Israel for a long time wanted a king. They were asking God, please give us a king. We want to be like these other nations, and we want a, we want a king. And so finally, God, through Samuel, chose Saul as the king. And the Bible in 1 Samuel, in the book of 1 Samuel, talks about how God's hand was on King Saul. He was a great warrior. This man was a very strong warrior. He was a man who's, who uh, had the presence of God on him, and, and he was a guy who got things done, King Saul was. Well, it's interesting because King Saul had many different victories, but there was one particular time when God asked him to do something very specific. 
You see, in the Old Testament times, God, if there were evil people in the world, God would literally wipe them off the face of the earth. He doesn't do that today anymore. But back in the Old Testament, he would literally wipe people who were evil off the face of the earth. And often he would use kings to do that. And he asked King Saul to wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. He said, I want you to destroy all, everything that they have. I want you to destroy every single one of them. And Saul went to battle and he won a great victory over the Amalekites. But you know what he did? He kept some of their stuff. And that wasn't what God asked him to do. God asked him to destroy everything that they had. And Saul kept some of their stuff. And so Saul fell out of favor with God. And all of a sudden, you find a king who once was blessed and anointed by God. All of a sudden, because of his disobedience, he fell out of favor with God. And the Bible says that King Saul became extremely troubled. And it tormented him. The Bible uses the word torment. It tormented him the fact that God's hand was no longer upon him. It tormented him that he was, his throne was very quickly slipping away. Well, God says to Samuel, the prophet, okay, it's time to kind of get away from Saul. We've got to choose a new king for Israel. And I want you to go to this, one of the sons of Jesse. And I want you to consider one of the sons of Jesse. And I'll show you which son will be the next king. And to much to, uh, to Samuel's surprise, to Jesse's surprise, and to David's brother's surprise, Samuel God, through Samuel, chose this man who was the run of the litter named David. And so David was chosen to be the next king of Israel. Now, at this point in time, the only people that know that are Samuel, Jesse, and David's brothers. And some, some time goes on before David is kind of announced and anointed as the king. Well, during this period of time, Saul, the current king, is greatly tormented. So he calls upon the best person that plays the harp in all of the land to come in and play the harp to soothe his torment. And he picks David. Yes, guys, playing the harp back in that day was cool, okay? So anyway, so David came into the king's court and he began to play the harp for King Saul. And the Bible says that it worked. In the middle of 1 Samuel, it says that King Saul was, his pain was eased. It says that he loved David and in fact that David increased in his influence there in the king's court. Now, at some point in time, David is out tending to his sheep, and the nation of Israel goes to war with the Philistines. And we find the story, uh, the great story about David and the, the giant Goliath, the Philistine giant. And we, we've heard that story, and many of you have probably heard that story before, of David taking one smooth stone and a slingshot, essentially, and knocking that giant down. And the Bible says that as the giant fell down, that David went over and took his own sword and cut his head off. Pretty gruesome there in the Bible in 1 Samuel. And he cut the, the giant's head off. He cut Goliath's head off. Now, what we don't know about that story and what's not told in Sunday school classes and what's not pointed out in movies and that sort of thing is that there were thousands of people on the hills watching David, this little shepherd boy, do what the whole army of Israel couldn't do, and that was to kill this great warrior, Goliath. And you know who was among those people who were watching David have this great victory? King Saul. And the Bible says that he burned with anger. He says that he, he was fearful of David, and then later it says he was even more afraid of David. And so all of a sudden, Saul burns 
with anger. Take a look at 1 Samuel 17, and we're going to look at 57 through 18, verse 2. David has just killed this giant, this warrior, Goliath. Take a look at this. As soon, verse 47 of 1 Samuel 17. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner, and that was one of Saul's attendants, took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. I mean, that's a picture right there. That's something out of a gory movie. There's David, this little shepherd boy, holding this giant's head. Crazy. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. He didn't even recognize him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. And then in chapter 18, verse 1, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his father's house. Now, we're going to come back to that passage in two weeks when we talk about David and Jonathan. But you get the picture here that Saul becomes increasingly fearful of David. Later in chapter 18, it says that Jonathan and many of the nation of Israel were praising David, and they said that Saul had killed his hundreds and David had killed his thousands just because he killed one giant. And so David all of a sudden has some acclaim, and Saul becomes bitter, and he becomes very angry with David. And it's very interesting because, De- because Saul was so afraid of David that he did what the Godfather movie says, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That's exactly how Saul treats David. He brings him in even closer so that he can keep a tight rein on David. He does that so much, he wants so much to control David's life that he even says, I'll give you one of my daughters in marriage. That's how insecure this man Saul was. That's how much he hated and was fearful of David, so much so that he would give a daughter to be married to him so that he could keep him close and keep his eye on him and keep him reined in. Now, a chase ensues. Something happens there in, uh, in 1 Samuel in, in those chapters 19 through 20 and, and, and in that range. And there's a very uh, kind of a, a graphic picture of a, uh, a chase that begins to take place. Saul became more and more angry with David and he tried to kill him right there in his court. And David takes off and he goes out into the desert. He goes away from Jerusalem. And the Bible says that David and his attendants were being chased by Saul and his army. Saul wanted more than anything in the world to kill David, to kill his now son-in-law. He just became so enraged at David. Now, we find out that at some point in time, David and his men go into a cave in what's called a place, it's called the En Gedi. And David and his men go into this cave, presumably to, to find a hiding place from Saul and his men. Well, Saul comes a Upon this cave where David and his men are hiding, and he goes into the cave, as we say in our house, to take a potty break, and he goes into the cave, and all of a sudden, David and his men realize, here's our chance. Saul came into this cave. There's, no, there's nobody around him. There's nobody to keep him safe. David, his friends say, his attendants say, this is your chance. Sneak up to Saul and kill him. Be done with him. Put this thing to, to end. Put Saul to the death. Kill the king, and you can become king, and you can have victory over Saul, and you don't have to worry about him chasing you anymore. Well, David sneaks up, presumably from behind, while um, Saul there is taking his potty break, and David decides that instead of killing him, he's going to cut off a piece of his tunic, 
a piece of his cloak. And so David tears off a piece of his cloak, of his tunic, and we kind of have a smile on our face about that. We kind of go, wow, that was pretty clever of David. But take a look in 1 Samuel 24, 5 through 13, how David dealt with this. 1 Samuel 24, 5 through 13. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. David was upset of his actions of cutting off a corner of his robe. David's men wanted Saul killed, and David was upset about cutting off a corner of his robe. The, uh, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the, the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave, and he called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down, prostrate, that means flat on the ground, himself with his face to the ground, and he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you. This is David speaking to Saul, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of robe that I have in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of the wrongdoing and rebellion. I have not wronged you. But you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you, he says to Saul. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. And so we're left there in 1 Samuel 24 with this idea that Saul and David have kind of come to a truce. But guess what? Saul continues to hunt down David. He continues to chase he and his men. And a little time goes by, and David once again is presented with an opportunity to destroy Saul. A few chapters later, we see Saul is camped out in a valley there outside in, this, in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And he's camped out in this valley, and David and his men see at night that the whole army, all the attendants who are supposed to be guarding King Saul, have fallen asleep. Good job, boys. They have fallen asleep, and all of a sudden, they see Saul right down in the middle of them. And David and his men talked themselves into going down and putting a sword through Saul and ending this thing. And they walk down, and they literally get, you kind of have the picture that they, they are kind of looking down upon Saul right there, right in his face. And David decides, you know what? I promised that I wouldn't kill him, and I'm not going to kill him. I respect this man. I may not like him. He may be my worst enemy, but I'm not going to kill him. And so David and his attendants take Saul's sword and they take his water jug that was right there close to Saul's head. And look what happens in 1 Samuel 26, 17 through 25. Saul, David goes up onto the hillside and he cries out in the darkness and probably wakes up that whole camp. And here's what happens in verse 17. Saul recognizes David's voice and said, is that your voice, David, my son? David replies, yes, it is my Lord, the king. And he added, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let, the, now let my Lord, the king, listen to his servant's word. If the Lord has in, uh, incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, 
May they be cursed before the Lord. They have now driven me today for my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Verse 20 says this. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground. David is saying, please, Saul, don't kill me. I haven't done anything wrong. Far from the presence of the Lord, the king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul says, and I want you to catch this, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious. Today, I will not try to harm you. The, uh, the Lord rewards every man for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I will not lay a hand on you. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and, sure, and uh, surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. Do you see how David, in the face of the greatest danger in his whole life, do you see how David respected King Saul? You really get the sense that he, he had two opportunities there to put his greatest enemy at the time to the death, and he backed off because he knew that God had anointed king Saul as king over all of Israel. I love the way that David presents himself to Saul in these situations. He presents himself and calls him by names of honor, and respect is clearly the hallmark of David's attitude towards Saul. But I will tell you that David wasn't 100% perfect in terms of respecting other people, was he? 2 Samuel chapter 11 gives us the story of David and Bathsheba. Take a look. We'll read just a few verses from this. David now is king. We have to fast forward in his life. He is now king over all of Israel, and he's reigning as king. And he's evidently become very comfortable with being king. Take a look at what verses 1 through the first part of 4 says. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, I will say that right here off the bat, David's doing something wrong. We'll come back to that in a moment. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged, uh, besieged Rahab, uh, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone out to find her. The man, she sa uh, the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, uh, Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent a messenger to get her. And getting her, in getting her, he obviously didn't get her just to talk to her. And we see what happens in the life of David. David has an affair with Bathsheba. He sends Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, out into the front of the battlefield, knowing that he's sending Uriah to his most certain death. And in this instance, we see David absolutely failing miserably in respecting Bathsheba. We see him failing miserably in respecting Uriah, one of his greatest warriors, Uriah the Hittite. And David spirals into a sin that started with a period of time where he was in a place that he wasn't supposed to be. You see, in that chapter there, in chapter 11, 2 Samuel 11, it says in the spring at the time that kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. He was in a place he wasn't supposed to be. He was supposed to be off at war. The Bible tells us that at this point in time, the time of the year, that this is when kings went into the battlefield and David decided that he would stay at home. I've heard it said that the idle mind is the devil's playground. Have you heard that before? That's so true. And it's so true in the life 
of David. This is a man who scripture later says is a man who's after God's own heart. And he sent a man into the battlefield. He sent a man to his death. He murdered Uriah the Hittite and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Well, we've got an Old Testament example of how you treat people with respect, how you don't treat people with respect. But let's take a look at our points this morning and find out what the principles are behind these. You know, we show respect when we are aware of certain things. And I want to point out three things that David in his uh, relationship with Saul were aware of and three things that in his relationship with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite were not aware of. First thing that we show respect when we're aware of is our thoughts. It's our thoughts. And here's the principle. Demonstrating respect means thinking about others with a pure motive. Demonstrating respect means thinking about others with a pure motive. You know, in David's relationship with Saul, he thinks about Saul with great respect. He considers Saul with great respect. And we know that because twice he's instructed by his men, by his counselors, to go kill King Saul, and he doesn't. Philippians 4, 8 says that our minds ought to be focused on what is pure. Take a look at it. Finally, brothers, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And church, let me tell you, that starts with how we think about other people, doesn't it? It starts with how we think about those who are closest to us in our lives. Our relationship with the people in our lives are no exception in terms of what and how we think about. It's absolutely no exception. Look at what Paul tells the church in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. He says this, We demolish arguments and every presentation that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Now, I want to point out something here. Paul doesn't say that you shouldn't think evil thoughts. We are human, and there's sin in the world, and we are going to think evil thoughts. That's going to happen. We're going to think evil thoughts. We're going to think impure thoughts about those around us. But you know what Paul says? That we ought to take those thoughts captive. In the original language, that word captive literally meant to capture. And the idea is, is when it comes into your mind, take it captive and decide whether it's evil or good. And if it's evil, get it out of your mind. Don't let it dwell in your mind let it go. And if it's pure, then you can let it dwell. The, the idea of thinking about purity extends to our relationships. Think about it. The Bible has a lot to say about children and obeying their parents, doesn't it? It has a lot to say about how we should respect our elders and those in leadership positions over us. The Bible in Ephesians speaks of husbands and wives having a mutual respect for each other. If you go to uh, a weekend to remember, I think you'll find that out. And I want to encourage you to visit Joe if some of this is relating to your marriage relationship and talk to him about how you could be at Weekend to Remember next week. But David's relationships demonstrate another aspect of what it means to have faithfulness in our relationships, and that's this. We show respect when we're aware, first of all, of our mind and our thoughts, but secondly, of our words. The principle here is demonstrating respect means speaking words of honor that honor and encourage and help others. Man, words are so sharp, aren't they? They are so sharp. And it's the next step either in goodness towards other people or in evil towards other people. It starts with the mind, and it always extends 
to the mouth and with our words. Look what Ephesians 4.29 says. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You see, David with Bathsheba, he had a thought first, and then he gave voice to that thought when he sent a servant to go find out about her, didn't he? David with Saul had a thought about Saul, and then it became words. He said, he rebuked his men for chasing after Saul and wanting to kill Saul. He speaks words of great honor. Did you see that in that scripture? He called him Lord. He called him my king. And you know what else he called him? I want you to capture this. Don't miss this. He called him my father. Oh, what a powerful word especially back in Israel in the Old Testament, for him to use that word gave the greatest honor that he could have given to King Saul in the midst of this man chasing him down to kill him. How lovely are your words to those who you love. Sometimes being respectful with our words is being silent, isn't it? There's an old Greek sage that said, I have often regretted my speech, but never my silence. And sometimes we just need to hold our tongues, don't we? We need to hold back on those things that we're thinking. Well, we show a lack of respect in our relationships when we have impure thoughts, when we voice evil intentions, and that leads to our actions, and it's the third thing this morning. And finally, we come to the last point. We show respect when we are aware of our actions. Here's the principle. Demonstrating respect means treating others the way that you would want to be treated. It's the golden rule, isn't it? It comes from Matthew 7, 12. Jesus said this, so in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. And that's exactly what David did with Saul, isn't it? He did with Saul exactly what he wanted. He voiced it with Saul, please don't kill me, Saul. But he put into action those words with Saul twice when he had an opportunity to end it with Saul. He did unto Saul what he wanted Saul to do to him. He didn't do that with Bathsheba or Uriah. He murdered, he murdered someone because he had I in first place. He had me in first place. He was all about him in that instance. We have to realize that when we love others, when we do to others what, what we want done to us, that that is one of the greatest ways that we can give honor and glory to God. In this passage here in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says that that sums up the law. Jesus took thousands of Old Testament law and summed it up by saying, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. You see, living the Christian life church isn't about a bunch of do's and don'ts, but it's about how we treat others because that's a reflection on our level of respect and our level of love towards God. So how are you doing this morning? How are you doing in terms of of your respect towards others. Husbands, do you have a great respect for your wife? Wives, do you respect your husbands? Students, do you respect your parents? Ouch, is that a tough one? Do you have a level of respect for your parents that would be honoring to God, the creator of heaven and earth? In your dating relationships, those of you who are single, is there a great amount of respect there? Is there respect for those who are in need who are around you? We honor God when we insert respect into our relationships. And when we do that, then we can remain faithful to those relationships. And when we do that, we're faithful to God. How's your respect quotient in the relationships you have? 
Father God, I pray that you would help us to be ever aware of our mind, of our words, and of our actions as it relates to other people. God, help us to do the right thing in those relationships. Help us to honor and give respect. God, even in the midst of those relationships that, oh boy, we feel like we've been the victim in. God, help us, even when we've had those in our life who have hurt us, to have a level of respect, just like David did with Saul. God, help us to honor those that we come in contact with. God, help us to think pure thoughts about other people. God, help us, as your word says, to take captive those impure thoughts. God, help us to catch them before they set in in our minds. And God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand what that means, to have the discernment and the wisdom to know what that means, God. I pray that you would be with marriages in here that are broken, and God, all it takes is one or the other saying, I am going to be determined to remain faithful, and that begins with me thinking thoughts of respect, speaking words of respect, and showing actions of respect, God. I pray that you would help us to be a group of people who are serious about our relationships because you are a great and awesome God, and you have given us the opportunity to have relationships. God, you've given us the opportunity to have life itself. And Father, I pray that we are people who honor you by our level of respect for others. Help us to do that. Search our hearts and help us to find out where we need to do that better. And in those relationships that we need to, God, I pray that you would make it apparent how we need to. And I pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.